Well, good morning, church family. So good to have you here. Is everyone doing well? Enjoying fall? Let it last longer? Amen? Thank you for being here. I'd like to welcome all of our other campuses. They join us by simulcast today. We've got Cincy, we've got Bainbridge, we've got Front Street down at Regal and online. Would you here at Green just welcome our other campuses? Going to begin with maybe the most spiritual way I, I know how to begin a message. Who here has seen Finding Nemo? As you know, very spiritual, right? If you haven't, you don't know what you're missing, maybe some Sunday afternoon watching with your, with your family. But as much as I'm a fish person, which is why I probably love the movie, my favorite moment in this movie is not the fish, it's the birds. Yeah, and I'm a bird person too, so I have problems. But so the birds at one point, there's this group of seagulls. Some of you already know where I'm going with this. You love this. I, I'm going to see if I can play what they say. So the seagull call is very common, and, and we hear it all the time. But they make a little twist on it where you almost hear an English word coming out as the seagulls are talking. So let, let me see if I can play this part for you. You catch that? Mine, mine, mine. And I love the pelican, so annoyed, and finally screams out, you just shut up, you're rats with wings. <laughs> and some of us have never heard seagulls the same since. We hear mine, mine, mine. In fact, it's not limited to the animal kingdom. In fact, if you go to a nursery or a playground or elementary school, you will hear the same call. Mine, mine. Mine. In fact, where two or more kids gather, mine is there in the midst of them. Now, many of us have grown up from those fights. We're adults. We just know how to do it differently. But we have the same mine monster screaming inside of us. For some, it's the road. How dare you merge in front of me? or go too slow, or go too fast. This road is mine. This lane is mine. For some, it's their time. How dare you interrupt me, or talk too much to me, or waste my time. My time is, say it with me, mine. For, for some, it's their achievement. How dare you or your team do better than mine? Victory is mine. I have a problem with that. For, for some, it's politics, right? How dare you, you, you vote for someone or, or promote a candidate who's different from mine. Political power is mine. For, for some, it's work. How dare you get promoted ahead of me? How dare you make more than me? Success at work is mine. For some, it's religion. How dare your church grow bigger, faster than my church? God's blessing is mine. Boy, are we seagulls. And our mind monster 
is always crying out for attention. It's always begging for a little bit more, a little more victory, a little more progress, a little more achievement, a little more stuff. And we're like babies in a nursery fighting over that one toy. Demanding we get what we want. This is an attitude that is never satisfied. As Rockefeller was once asked, how much is enough? You're the richest man in the world. How much is enough? And his famous answer was just a little bit more. But what if Jesus, the guy who came into the world claiming to be God, who predicted his own death and resurrection and then pulled it off, what if he introduced to the world an attitude that has the ability to shut the mind monster down? What if there's another way to view life and live through life? And what if there's another attitude that we can actually embrace that Jesus gave us that has the power to overcome our inner mind monster? If there was such an attitude, would you want to know what it was? I would too. So let's look at it together. If you would turn with me in your copy of the Bible to Mark chapter 9. That's where we're going to tackle the mind monster. Mark chapter 9. I'm going to read out of the chair Bible. It's New Living Translation. So if you're using a Bible app, you can tap to NLT and it'll, it'll match word for word. And if you want a chair Bible, please take that home as our gift to you. We'd love to give Bibles away here at Burian. And if you're at our Regal campus, there's a white sack somewhere near you. That's where the Bible is hidden. You can open that, take the Bible out, use it, take it home as our gift to you. Mark chapter 9, verse 38 is where we're going to start. This is, a, this is a great story. So this is Jesus. He's been with his guys for a couple years now, and he's been training them. He's got a circle of 12 guys that he's training to go out and change the world. And then he's got an inner circle of three guys that he's pretty close friends with. And it's this inner circle, this group of three, one of those three guys, one of his closest friends, John comes to him one day and they have this little conversation. Verse 38, John said to Jesus, teacher, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop because he wasn't in our group. I don't know if that's how we said it, but that's how I hear it. He wasn't in our group. Jesus, you've called us. You've mentored us. You've laid your hands on us. You've given us your power. And so we can do those types of things. But this guy, we don't know him. We don't think you've called him. We know you haven't trained him. You haven't laid your hands on him. And he's definitely not part of our group. He needs to be stopped because this work is, say it with me, mine. It's mine. It's mine. And what you see here is just a, just a moment in time, you see this thing called tribalism. Tribalism. It's something that we experience constantly in the church. We experience constantly in the country. This idea of anything that's in my group with people, I agree is good, and anything not in that circle is bad. Right? When my church is growing, it's because God's blessing. But when their church is growing, it's because they're compromising. When my political candidate wins, they deserve it. But when theirs wins, they cheated. I, I could keep going, but you get the idea. It's about our 
group and there's this, this tribalism and polarization that marks our world. It's just normal, but it's also marking Jesus' inner circle. Jesus, for two years, has been trying to teach these guys a different type of attitude. But two years in, and they still got this, they still got this tribalism. And so Jesus is going to face it head on. Verse 39. Jesus' reply is pretty unequivocal. He says, what's he say? Three words. Don't stop him. Don't stop him. No one who performs a miracle in my name will soon be able to speak evil of me. So in other words, Jesus is saying, guys, 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 would you shut up? Would you let him do what he's doing just because he's not in our group? Doesn't mean he's doing something wrong. Don't be so insecure. Don't be so polarizing. If he's using my name to do something good, then he's probably not going to turn around tomorrow and speak evil of me. And what Jesus is really doing is he's slapping them back to reality. He said, guys, this really, at the end of the day, isn't about you, and it's not about your group. Do you realize you're following me? This is about me. This is about my name, my work, and my reputation. And I hate to break it to you, but I'm doing something big, and it's bigger than even you. And it's bigger than even your group. And I'm going to use people who are different from you. And I'm going to use people who look and smell and act different than you. And I'm going to use people you don't even like. And I am going to do something that you on your own couldn't do alone. But I am going to work out a plan that's bigger than you. So don't you dare stop him. I don't need any nannies. I don't, need, I don't need any guards. I can do this without you guys, but I'm going to include you. But you need to know that I'm going to tap and I'm going to use people different from you. In fact, in a few years, Jesus was going to tap the most unlikely person on earth to join his team, someone they would have a problem with. So Jesus gives him this, this, this gentle slap back to reality. And then verse 40, he says this. Anyone who is not against us is what? For us. Now, it sounds like a familiar phrase, only backwards. 20-some years ago, we heard our president say, anyone who's not with us is against us. And we all cheered because that's the mind monster, right? We love this idea of you're either in our group or we're going to fight you. We'll roll over you. We'll destroy you. And Jesus says, well, wait, wait, wait. Let, let's turn that on its head. Let's turn that on its head. Anyone who's not against us is for us. And I imagine just like us, they were probably scratching their heads trying to figure that out. Like, how's that going to work? That means my enemy's list would be a lot shorter. My friend's list might be a lot longer. And I don't like the way that feels. That's disconcerting. It's easier to draw in rigid lines. It's easier to have black and white. It's easier to know if you're not with me, on my team, in support of me, part of my group, then I just don't like you, don't care for you, and don't root for you. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm going I'm to flip the script here. Anyone who's not against us, let's just say they're for us. Let's just go with that. 
And he introduced an attitude that would be really, really hard for his guys to embrace. Now, here's what's cool. A few years ago, something happened, and I, and I want to show you a passage written by this guy. So if you would turn to one more passage with me, Philippians 1, page 946, Philippians 1. And, and I want to tell you a little bit about the author for just a minute before we read what he says. The author of Philippians was a guy named Paul. And Paul was a world-famous terrorist. Paul was intent on stopping out the, the followers of Jesus, the cult as he considered them. And they were sweeping through the capital city of his nation, and, and he was a very strong nationalist, and he wanted to eliminate the cult. You know that most unlikely person on earth I mentioned a minute ago? That's this guy. That's Paul. And he used, in his repertoire, he was a guy who liked to win. So he used intimidations and threats, even resorting to violence as needed, to achieve his ends. In fact, he helped to oversee the first stoning and death of a Jesus follower after Jesus left. But what happened for Paul is the results weren't what he hoped. His intent was to cause these these cult folks who believed in Jesus to flee his city and to shut up. But what happened is they fled his shitty and city and wouldn't stop talking. Well, slip of the tongue there, sorry. And, and they, <laughs> whoops. <laughs> we just start over. <laughs> they fled his city and they wouldn't stop talking. And here's the thing, Paul's like, it's not working. The more I try to, to shut these guys down, the more they talk openly about Jesus. It's just not working. It was like this guy was pouring gasoline on the fire. And what happens is ironic, one day he meets Jesus and everything changed for Paul. And in a few short years, he would go from Christianity's most feared man to Christianity's most respected leader. It's this transformation that's stunning. But Christians would struggle to trust him, and his enemies would struggle to stop him. But nothing and no one could stop this new follower of Jesus. He was all in. He was a fighter. He was a bold leader. He was, he was not going to be stopped. Eventually, his enemies got a hold of him. They arrested him on these false, trumped-up charges. They, they had him go to trial. It was a messy trial. It didn't really work out. And so finally he appealed to what was the Supreme Court in that day. And so he got relocated to the city where he would face justice, hopefully, maybe, probably not. And in this future, in this city called Rome, the headquarters of the empire, he's waiting under guard in an apartment with guys who were chained to him to make sure that he didn't flee. And there in Rome, as his life is fairly difficult, what Paul does is he doesn't shut up. Just what he couldn't get other Jesus followers to do earlier on, he now does. He can't stop talking about Jesus, and he's sharing Jesus with everyone. But it doesn't always go the way he wants. His boldness is having a contagious effect in Rome, as other Christians are beginning to realize, well, if this guy under guard can speak openly about the faith of Jesus, then maybe we can too. And if, if, if he's still living and it's still working, then we'll start speaking openly. We thought it was illegal. We thought this wasn't acceptable. But, you know, he's having a lot of success. So it spawned all these other guys who started very public speaking ministries, speaking about Jesus. And some of them were phenomenal, and others were 
A-class idiots. They didn't like Paul. They, they, they were jealous of the attention he was getting. They thought they could do better. There's all these things. And so as they're trying to make Paul's life difficult, Paul kind of calls them out here and addresses them. Paul's never one to pull any punches. So he's going to share his thoughts. Verse 12. Philippians chapter 1. And I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that's happened to me here in Rome has helped to spread the good news. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I'm in chains because of Christ. They've heard I keep talking about Jesus. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. So this is a cool thing. And Paul's like, I see it all around me. People are getting bold for their faith. It's true that some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry. He just kind of admits that. Some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry. But others preach about Christ with pure motives. They preach because they love me, for they know I've been appointed to defend the good news. Those others do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely, intending to make my chains more painful to me. Now imagine this guy. This guy has been through a lot for his faith. He's literally chained up to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day. And he hears and maybe even witnesses from his balcony other guys publicly declaring Jesus, but they're doing it in a way that's attacking him. And they're being very selfish, and he knows they're all about themselves. And, and this is a guy who's a very bold, courageous leader. And he's like, I have rivals in this city. And rivalry is nothing new. Rivalry is as old as humanity. You go back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 4, the first two sons born on earth were pretty, pretty big rivals. In fact, the firstborn son ended up killing the second son out of jealousy and rivalry. So this is an ancient problem, and there's, there's an ancient solution to dealing with rivalries. You fight and let the strongest one win. Now guess what? You get in a fight with Paul, and you know who's going to win? Paul. I mean, that guy, he's a, he's a verbal judo expert. He has been trained with the best of them. He has the education, the pedigree. He knows how to win a verbal match. And so these people that are rivals that are speaking against him and making his life miserable, all Paul has to do is say the phrases that he knows will win the crowds and drop the mic, and he wins the rivalry. He knows how to do it. He's an expert at it. He spent his life doing it before he met Jesus. And Paul now just kind of calls out these guys and admits they're rivals, they're out there, they're making his life difficult. And, and reread verse 17 with me before you get his solution. Those others do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely, intending to make my chains more painful to me. But that doesn't matter. What? You bet it matters, Paul. Obviously, it's annoying you, and it should. Obviously, you're sensitive to these rivals, and you should be. What do you mean it doesn't matter? Now, we just got to admit for a moment that guys like Paul, those hard-charging, driven A-type leaders, are highly sensitive about their reputations, very sensitive to personal attacks. And Paul just throws out this phrase, hey, it doesn't matter. 
Paul realizes something that Jesus was trying to teach his guys a few years ago. It doesn't matter if they're not in your group. Life's not all about you. My plan and my purposes are bigger than you. I remember as a, as a kid with brothers about my age, we used to have sibling rivalries, and we would get in fights. And you know what mom would say when we, you know, as the person who didn't cause it and didn't start it and all that would take it to her? She would respond with this. Well, Justin, it takes two to fight. I hated that. You know what hurts so much? She was right. It takes two to fight. And Paul here just says, you know what? I'm not going to be the second. I'm not going to turn this into a fight. I'm not going to throw fuel on the fire. They don't like me. They're speaking poorly of me. They're causing issues. But you know what? It doesn't matter. What do you think it took Paul to write that down? I, I mean, I can imagine him, and, and he didn't usually write because his eyesight was poor. He'd usually narrate. So I can imagine him saying, okay, write this down, the guy he's, he's dictating to. It doesn't matter. I can imagine a guy like, you want me to write that down? Write it down. It doesn't matter. You sure? Yes, write it down. It doesn't matter. And then this is what he says. It, that doesn't matter. Whatever, whether their motives are false or genuine, the message about Christ is being preached, being proclaimed either way. So I rejoice. And I will continue to rejoice. No matter their motives, no matter what they say about me, no matter the things they're spewing that I can't stand, Christ is being preached, so I will rejoice. And I just admire this guy in this moment with a guard chained to him as he's dictating about these guys who are causing issues for him. And he says, in a way that I can't understand, it doesn't matter. And I'm going to choose to rejoice about what they're doing and saying. And Paul here chooses the attitude that Jesus was trying to teach his guys. And it's really simply this. He was choosing to be kingdom minded. This is the attitude Jesus was trying to give to his followers, an attitude that would have changed their lives, an attitude that would have quieted the mind monster. Guys, it's not about you, and it's not about your group. It's about me. It's about my kingdom, and I'm doing something bigger than you can imagine, and I'm doing something bigger than your group, and Paul's like, I get it. I met Jesus once, and I get it. It doesn't matter. It's not about me, and I rejoice. I want you to see what he says right after that. He says, Christ is being preached either way, so I rejoice, and I will, what's he say next? I will continue to rejoice. In other words, when these guys speak, when they get a platform, when they get opportunities to expand their movements, when, when they get fame, when they get notoriety, whatever, when they get success, I'm going to choose, I'm going to predetermine that I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to celebrate their success. 
It takes two to fight, and it's really hard to continue with fighting for someone that's celebrating you, that's cheering for you. This was an incredibly unifying thing in the first century church, is there were leaders like Paul who decided we're not going to make this thing a rivalry. We're on the same team, and we're going to act like And I love how he doesn't just say, I rejoice. He says, I will continue to rejoice. And I can imagine the guy he's narrating to says, was that a note for yourself or you want me to put that in the book? Put it in the book to remind me that tomorrow when I wake up and I feel hurt, (laughs) I feel sensitive, I feel jealous of these other guys, I've predetermined today that tomorrow I'll rejoice. The day after that, when I wake up and I feel all of that coming up in me, and I feel the mind monster screaming, I am going to rejoice. The only way to defeat selfishness is to stop focusing on self. Kingdom-mindedness quiets our inner mind monster. To do this attitude, this attitude that Jesus gave to his inner circle, that he, that he gave somehow to Paul, this attitude of kingdom-mindedness has the ability to shut up that mind monster. But to do that, I have to pre-decide like Paul did. I, he's pre-deciding, I'm going to rejoice. I will rejoice. <laughs> I rejoice now and I will continue to rejoice. So if I'm going to adopt this mindset for myself, there's some things I've had to pre-decide. I'm going to share three things that I, that I have pre-decided, and I don't find these things easy. I have pre-decided that I will not celebrate the failure of another person, even if it's someone I dislike. Do you know how hard that is? When someone that we can't stand has a defeat or they fail, it's this inner, oh yeah, they're going down, right? I'm I'm, I'm that guy who roots for the underdog team and I always want the big good team to fail, right? And And I'm cheering against, I'm cheering against. And so in life, it's easy to do the same thing. You cheer against. But I have to pre-decide in my mind I am not going to celebrate the failure of another person even if it's someone I dislike. Let me share with you what Scripture says about this in Proverbs 24, verse 17. Don't rejoice when your enemies fall. Don't be happy when they stumble. For the Lord will be displeased with you and will turn his anger away from them. So if you want God to get them really good, Don't celebrate when they, no, that's the wrong attitude, right? But God's saying, listen, you rejoice when your enemies fall and I'm gonna turn away from dealing with them and I'm gonna have to deal with you. And so kingdom-mindedness predetermines I will not celebrate when my enemies, when my rivals, when they fall or fail. Another decision that I have to predetermine is I will celebrate the successes of others even if we disagree. I will celebrate the successes of others even if we disagree. That's Paul here, right? Hey, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what they think about me or say about me. It doesn't matter they're not in my group. It doesn't matter that I don't like them, frankly. I'm not going to celebrate 
when they fall, but I will celebrate when they succeed. Here's another decision predetermined. I will pray for other people, even those I consider rivals. You know, this has a real impact on my heart. I found in so many areas of my life, the people that I struggle with and the people that I dislike, even on a national level, when I begin praying for them, God does something to my heart. He doesn't often do something on their heart, which is what I'm often praying for. He does something on my heart. It's really hard to stay angry at someone you're praying for. For some of you, that's a spouse, right? Just starting to pray for that spouse who's not what you wanted them to be or they're different than the person you married. And you just say, I am going to stop treating them like a rival. I'm going to start praying for them every day. And I'll celebrate when they succeed and I will not be glad or smirk when they fail. This is a huge attitude shift. It's not natural for most of us. But it's exactly what Jesus tried to teach his followers. So as a church family, there's, there's a few attitudes that we've decided, we've pre-decided that we want to embrace. And kingdom-mindedness is one of those five attitudes. We've said as a church, we are going to pre-decide to be kingdom-minded and not to be focused only on us. Because it's easy to do. It's easy to be very focused only on us and within our walls and our campuses and all about building our thing and our brand or whatever you want to call it. And so we've said, no, 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 that's not the way of Jesus. We are pre-deciding as a church to adopt an attitude that's very unnatural. And there's a few ways that recently I've seen this kingdom-minded attitude happen here. And so I just want to call it out. It's a good thing. When our music director, Alyssa, had an idea to put on a worship conference for other churches, to bless other churches, we knew it would take a lot of time, hundreds of hours of planning, dozens of volunteers. It would be a cost. But you know what we as a church did and, and as a staff team we did? We cheered her on because we knew it would be a win for the kingdom. It would be a drain on our local church, but it would be a win for the kingdom. And we said, if we're going to be a kingdom-minded church, then we're going to be more known for what we give than what we take. If we're going to be a kingdom-minded church, then we're going to be more known than who we're for than who we're against. And we're for other churches across the Northeast. And it was a beautiful day. Just last Saturday, as, as you heard, we, 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 we partnered with Northeast Collaborative in a cool way. And, and I just want to mention that for a moment. When we partnered a few years ago with a few guys to launch this thing called Northeast Collaborative, it was this idea of we're going to help pastors lead and launch healthy churches across the Northeast, the spiritually darkest corner of America. When we send missionaries out to other parts of the world, some of those places are more reached than Northeast America. It is the most post-Christian part of our country. And we said, we're going to help other pastors lead and launch healthy churches. And we've put a lot of time into that. And I, as of today, have still not received a complaint to my knowledge that we've been spending too much time helping other churches and other pastors. To the opposite, we've received a ton of encouragement from you saying, I love being part of a church that does this. Love being part of a church that 
unselfishly invest in others. Last Saturday, as, as you know, and we talked about it this morning, we had the Northeast Leadership Summit, and this country church opened its doors to hundreds of other pastors and leaders and volunteers from churches all across Northeast America. And it was such a cool day as a year of planning kind of climaxed with a day of equipping hundreds of people from dozens of churches. And you know, as we did that, and I was looking around this place, I was realizing some of these people, we'll maybe never see them again. But we're on the same team. You know what? Their label and their town, although it's outside of our group and different than us, it doesn't matter. Because we are part of the same family, and what God is doing is bigger than us. And to whom much is given, much is required. And God has given us much, amen? And so we want to be found faithful before God to be giving and unselfish. Managers with open hands, God trusts with more. Those who close fist and white knuckle, he can't trust with more. And we want to say, God, we will be your kids. We will not make this all about us. And so it's just predetermining. My home, my office, my church, they're not mine, first of all, and they're not my castle, and this church is not my kingdom, and this world is not my kingdom. I am a kid of a different kingdom. Anybody else? And I'm just passing through, and I'm here to make a difference while I'm alive and to be unselfish. And so we are going to open our doors, and we're going to serve those who are different from us, and we're going to pray for those who are not in our group, and we're going to serve those who don't think or act or talk like us. And so... A lot of us here have made a commitment. We are not going to fight against, speak against, or try to stop those not in my group because God's kingdom is bigger than my group. He is building a family, and here's the family he's building. He is building a family from people of every tribe and every tongue across the world, and he is selecting people, even like he selected the terrorist Saul to become Paul, he is selecting people today who are very, very different from us, and we celebrate that because we are a tiny part of a much bigger kingdom, and I refuse to waste one breath tearing down, talking down, or being jealous of another part. A lot of Organizations and churches have core values, and often those core values are, they're aspirational. It's what you aspire to. But I can tell you that this church, the core value of being kingdom-minded is not just an aspirational core value. It is very much a reality. It's, it's who many of you are. And in this room and in our other campuses, we have people who are some of the most gracious, kind, unselfish people I've ever met. And they are also some of the least critical, insecure, and selfish people I've ever met. And if that describes you, can I just say on behalf of all of us, thank you. Thank you for that example that you set for all of us. Thank you for being so unselfish and kingdom-minded and gracious. We talked last week about Jim Yankelitis, one of our 
volunteers here who, who passed away last month. And I shared at a celebration of life last Sunday that I could not think of a single time that I ever heard Jim say something negative or tear someone down. And I had a lot of talks with Jim. And I am so convicted by that because I'm not even close to that, right? So, so for me, this is an aspirational value. It's something I want. It's something I, I hope I'm getting closer to, but I don't want to waste my breath tearing down something that God is doing using people who are sometimes very different from us. So as we learn how to embrace this kingdom-minded attitude, maybe we'll have less fights in the sandbox with each other. And maybe, maybe those, where are they? Can you click for me if you don't mind? There we go. Maybe those guys won't be so loud. Not in our church, not in our souls. And maybe we'll learn, instead of saying, mine, 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 maybe we'll learn to say, his, his, his. It's about his name. It's about his fame. It's about his kingdom. And I'm a small part of that. Amen? Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Today we talk about being part of something bigger than ourselves. And before I pray, I, I want to give you the opportunity to be part of something bigger than yourselves. I want to give you an invitation. It's not to join the church. It's not even to join our group. It's to join a kingdom. A kingdom that's invisible, that's made up of people from around the world. The entry is free only because someone already paid the price of admission. Jesus Christ paid that price of membership with his own life. And now he offers, if you receive him, to let you come into his family, be part of his kingdom, and join a movement that's bigger than you. In this movement, we are not perfect. We are simply forgiven. Jesus sees all our sin, hates all our sin, but loves us. And he offers to forgive me and you, no strings attached. So this morning, if you're not part of this kingdom, I want to invite you in. The, the, the way you come in is simply by faith. There's nothing you do. It's a matter of your heart. It's a matter of belief. When you believe and turn to Jesus, you become like Paul. You're transformed from the inside. You're forgiven. Your past no longer has any hold or weight on you. And you enter the kingdom, the family of God. And so if that's you this morning and, 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 and you believe, you're putting your trust and your hope in Jesus, no matter your age, you may, be, you may be a retiree, you may be a young person, you may be in between. Listen, if you believe this morning, if you have faith, that faith is a gift from God. He's given you eyes to see what maybe before you have and he's given you faith to believe maybe what before you haven't. So today we want to welcome you and celebrate with you. There are no outcasts or outsiders here. Maybe today you're already a follower of Jesus, but you're, you're in a group and you're awful suspicious of those not in it. And so maybe today is just pre-deciding 
Not to leave your group, but predeciding that you will love those on the other side of it. That you won't treat them like rivals, but you will treat them like equals. You will treat them like teammates. You will pray for them. You will speak well of them. You will not celebrate when they fall. You will not laugh when they stumble. You will not cheer when they fail. And so today I'm going to wrap this up and we're just going to pray for those that maybe in our hearts we consider rivals and pray God's blessing on them as he begins to turn our heart towards this attitude of kingdom-minded. Father, we pray today not for ourselves. We pray for the other churches right here in our communities. Lord, their doors are open. They're, they're, they're speaking your word. Yeah, some of them have very different labels and beliefs, but Lord, we pray for their success. We pray for the gospel to flourish. We pray for their, their chairs to fill. We pray for people to come to hear you. No matter what they think or say about us, we love them and we bless them. God, we pray for churches across the Northeast, those that exist and those that haven't yet been planted. We pray that we would be able to encourage them and give to them and bless them. And this movement that you're spreading across our world is so much bigger than us. Let us just be a small part of it. God, those that are in our lives that are personal rivals, personal enemies, God, we pray even for them this morning. Help them to be blessed by you. Help them to know how loved they are by you. And may graciousness and unselfishness only ever come off our lips. May we be known, not like John was known as the guy who stopped other people outside of his group. May we be known like Paul who says it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I choose to rejoice. God, thank you that when we were your enemies, you didn't consider us rivals. You considered us friends. You died for us and you demonstrated a heart of a gracious, unselfish, heavenly Father. May we reflect that same heart to those around us. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. And God's people said, amen.